I'm Gregory Berg. During this COVID-19 pandemic, some people of a certain age have been reminded of another frightening public health care crisis in America, the polio epidemic of the late 1940s and early 1950s. The following morning show interview, at least to some extent, concerns that frightening epidemic. This interview was recorded and originally broadcast back in 2003. And it certainly is an interesting experience to have on the other end of the phone line this morning a very familiar voice from NPR's Morning Edition. Uh, all of you have heard this voice time and time again in his insightful commentaries on the world of sports. I'm talking about Frank DeFord, one of America's most, uh, uh, most admired, highly acclaimed uh, sports writers, but a writer and author in, in other venues as well. And in addition to... Uh, the sports writing which he does. He is a novelist with a, a truly beautiful new novel uh, just out called An American Summer, published by Source Books. And we're going to spend most of our time talking about this book and uh, what led him to write it and, uh, and to craft it so beautifully. Frank DeFord, it's a pleasure and honor to be talking with you today. Well, Greg, I thank you very much for those nice words. And uh, I am not a big fan of fiction, I'll just tell you. So, when, so a novel really has to be good for me to... Uh, even stick it out to the end, let alone enjoy it. And uh, I, I absolutely loved this novel. We should say that it is, surrounds the, the story of a, of a young teenage boy in, in the 1950s, coming of age, uh, befriending a, a slightly older woman, but still a young woman, who uh, is a victim of polio. I wonder, first of all, just about the general setting and, and how it is that you happen to choose this. I have a feeling it maybe has some kind of connection with your own life. Well, I, I, the, the book is placed in Baltimore, and that's where I grew up. I didn't know anybody in an iron lung, though, um, but I, 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 like everybody who was alive then, knew somebody with polio. Surely, I had an aunt, for example, with polio, and I knew a couple of guys who had polio. So we all did, and so um, it, it, it made it very easy for me to write about this. One of the things that always amazed me was how once Dr. Salk cured, or not cured it, but found the vaccine that prevented it in 1955, polio just dropped out of our consciousness. So I always wanted to write about it, but I didn't want to write too much about polio. It would be too depressing. And so I brought the coming-of-age story uh, and, and put that on top and put, put polio in the background. I, I, I think in a way that it really works well. Uh, so polio was something with which you were somewhat familiar as, as someone growing up in that era. Even if you didn't know anybody with polio, your mother scared you to death about polio. I mean, it would, we talk about terrorism. I mean, and, and in a real sense, polio was a terror. We were terrified of it. Absolutely. And so uh, it was, don't, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't go in a crowd. Don't go, for God's sake, don't go swimming. Now, people were convinced that somehow water had something to do with the transmission of polio, probably because Franklin Roosevelt, the president, had gotten polio after he'd been swimming. And so it was absolutely in our minds all the time, uh, particularly in the summers when the, when the epidemics peaked. You, uh, you actually place into uh, the, the mouths of certain characters in this book some of those dire words of, of, of warning. <laughs> uh, something else that it was interesting to me is I, I realized as, as I read this book my utter ignorance of many things about polio, but in particular what the iron lung was what it actually did. I think I've only seen maybe a few photographs, and 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 that that's all I know. Tell us a little bit more about life in the iron lung. Uh, I can't imagine anything worse. Anybody in an iron lung was essentially immobile, a quadriplegic, uh, could move really nothing but your head. Um, an iron lung breathes for you. Um, 
how exactly it worked, I don't know, but it essentially did the breathing function for you that you, because you were so paralyzed, couldn't manage by yourself. Uh, and, and you just sat or lay in this, this tube, um, immobile, for the rest of your life with, with no hope whatsoever. And that's why it was so important for me to make my character, who was in an Iron Lung Catherine, it was so important for me to make her um, not a pitiful character, but someone who was spunky and, and absolutely full of life, even if she didn't have any physical life much left in her. You do speak a bit about polio, and I wonder to what extent did you actually research the the disease? Oh, Greg, I I did a, a a reasonable amount of research because I had to, you know, be conversant with it. But I didn't want to turn it into sort of a medical treatise, so I read you know what I could on the subject and spoke to a couple of doctors about it. But I, I it's it's not a book that required a a great deal of research, and it takes place in Baltimore, where I grew up, so I could use. The, the, the canvas of, of, of my own youth without having to research that. As a matter of fact, that was an awful lot of fun going back in time for me. I got, it's a very nostalgic book for me. Of course. One of the things that you, you talk about that is in one of the, the really uh, poignant conversations, one of many, between the character of Christy, the, the young boy, and uh, Catherine, the polio victim, uh, is, is when she talks about the summer that she was stricken with polio, and she she talks about being seventeen, and how in some ways she feels like life stopped, or or the advancement of life stopped, and in some ways she feels like she is frozen back there at that moment in time when she lost so much. I thought that was a striking insight into what it perhaps felt like to be struck down by this. Yeah, she says, I, I don't know what my age is. I don't have an age. I don't have a body. That's sort of the way I feel sometimes, uh, and. And all her friends, of course, had left her. Um, she only meets Christy through um, uh, strange circumstances in which he, um, he's out as a paper boy and he saves her little dog who's wandering across the street and, and that brings him back into the house and they meet each other. And normally a 14-year-old boy wouldn't have anything to do with a 23-year-old woman, whether she was in an iron lung or not. But he's new to town and he has no friends. And so that's how they strike up this friendship, which really, I think, one could say, turns into a love story. I mean, not in the traditional sense at all, but they really do get to love each other. And and, and he's having a lot of things happen to him this summer uh, around him, and she kind of steers him through it. And by the same token, uh, Christy gives purpose to Catherine's life. Absolutely. We should say then, maybe at this moment, that what sort of cements their encounter beyond simple friendship is the swimming pool, which Catherine's uh, parents own, and uh, in which Christie learns how to really swim. You've got to remember, and anybody reading the book now, that in the 1950s, uh, swimming pools were, were not the common device that they are today. I mean, you know, you fly into a city and you look down and you see swimming pools all over the suburbs. Right. But you had to be very wealthy in the 1950s to have a swimming pool. It was a very unusual thing. And, and the way I have it is that Catherine's parents have built her this pool in the hopes that she could do some therapy there. This President Roosevelt swam a lot to, to keep his healthy self uh, vigorous, but of course she's too far gone ever to use the pool. But it becomes a meeting place that at least in the summer, Catherine can sit out by the pool in her iron lung and meet people, you know, the parents, the children who come to use it. And so if it's, if it's not an advantage for her health, it is for her um, society. She's she's able to 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 meet people, and there's a big race at the end of the summer, and 
and Christy is going to win it, and she's going to help him win it. <laughs> it's kind of an annual event, correct? Yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the culmination of the summer at Labor Day called the Great Race, and um, the Great Medley, in which you swim um, uh, freestyle, uh, backstroke, underwater, and breaststroke. You've got to swim all four. And uh, I won't go into the plot, but Catherine has a trick for uh, Christie, which might help him win the race. Might, yes. We'll yeah. underline the word might. Might, yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I particularly love in this book, and I, I regret I can't really read an excerpt <laughs> from it, but that, that uh, you, you take almost an entire chapter to chronicle the race itself, <laughs> and you do such a marvelous, vivid job of painting this picture of what it is like to be knifing through the water as a, as a trained swimmer. Uh, first of all, I wonder, are you, are you writing from experience? No. I, I mean, I swam, and I think I can vaguely remember being in a few swimming races at a little, you know, summer resort or something like that, but no one would, would mistake me for Mark Spitz. I can, I can assure <laughs> you that, that I was not any sort of a competitive swimmer. But I, you asked about research earlier, and I, I read some books about the uh, about swimming, and, you know, I think we've all, any of us who've swam at all, uh, got a sense of what it's like going through the water, and, uh, and particularly the sense of, of, of competing, whether it's in a swimming race or a running race or a game of basketball or whatever. I think I can bring that to bear. Absolutely. We're talking with author Frank DeFord about his most recent novel, which is called An American Summer, published by, by Source Books. Uh, Mr. DeFord, the, uh, the character of Christie, the, the young man, he's, is he 14? 14. 14 years old. Uh, he, he is an intriguing character to me uh, in that he is, uh, in, in some respects, a very ordinary boy and in other ways uh, quite extraordinary. I mean, almost heroic in some ways in his sensitivity in uh, in his kindness towards Catherine, his maturity and appreciation. How did you come up with all these different facets of this young man? Well, uh, certainly not the heroic qualities, but some of Christie is me. I, I uh, grafted a bit of myself onto this character. I, I think I was a pretty savvy kid, but I was also, um, in many respects, a naive kid, too. I know that sounds like a contradiction, but you can be sort of wise in one way and, and very innocent in another. And in the 1950s, you know, I don't think kids knew nearly as much as they do today. They simply didn't have the access to the ways of the world, the way children today do with television and Internet and, and all that sort of thing. But if, if, if Christie does become heroic, and I agree with you that he does, He's sensitive in the beginning, and I like to think that I was sensitive and maybe still am sensitive. If he's sensitive and, and he becomes heroic, a lot of that is because of Catherine kind of steering him and him simply being with her. I think that he gains an appreciation of life and what lies ahead for him by seeing this, this poor young woman whose life has effectively been taken away from from her. And I think he becomes much more mature uh, just being around her and much more appreciative being around her. Uh, as, as the author, were you at all hesitant about making Christie such a good character? Were you tempted to make him more flawed? Well, I, I would hope that we see him as, um, in two ways, that we do see him as very much of a, of a flawed young man who... who can give in to temptations and, and, and be a silly kid in, in many respects and get mad at his sister and, and you know, and, hmm. and 
disobey his parents and do all the things that any kid would do. That on the one hand he's that, but it's just, it's that it's that example of of an ordinary person being put in extraordinary circumstances. And what what do they do when they find themselves that way? And he is very childish, and he gets mad at at someone in his family that I won't get. And, you know, and, and acts very much in a childish way. But luckily, he always gets steered um, to do the good thing. Right. I, I guess that's, I mean it in the best sense of the word, that's one of the things that makes this such a feel-good book. I mean, I really, I use the term hesitantly. Maybe you cringe as no, you hear no, it. No, 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 I don't. I think, that's, <laughs> I think it, it should be. I, I, th- I think it is. It's a story of, of uh, rising above your circumstances. And, and, and I think we cheer for Christie when he does the things that he does at the end of the book. One of the things that is, of course, uh, a, a predominant uh, line of the story is the fact that, as we've just, uh, as we've already briefly mentioned, the young man Christie has just relocated to Baltimore from Terre Haute, Indiana, with his father, and uh, and you really, uh, you really tell us in, in in very poignant, vivid detail what it is like for a fourteen-year-old to experience that kind of really, uh, well, let's call it upheaval. Yeah, I never had that myself. Greg, I'm, I'm really? glad you. Yeah, no, I grew up in Baltimore and was born and bred there, and, and stayed in virtually the same house all my life. So I never knew what it was like to be dislocated like that. But I can remember it. I mean, I can imagine it, and I, I do remember those times where you would go off to camp or you would go to a new school, and and how difficult that was right away. I mean, I think we can all envision, even if we didn't have that experience, that sense of of, of loneliness, and particularly if you were a shy kid, and I was kind of shy, uh, and. Um, yeah, it's not easy, particularly in the middle of the summer. At least when you when you come in a school year, you know you have friends, potential friends all around you, and he's stuck there in the middle of nowhere with his father. You know, my stupid father and me, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. And then then he comes across he he comes across this strange young woman, and and and, and sort of out of you know with no other course, he becomes her friend, and then of course learns to really love her. Right, and, and, and it changes everything. It changes everything. Let's talk a, b- a moment, if we can, about uh, the, the story that you also tell about, uh, about Christie's father, that it is a, a promotion which brings him to town, but uh, some unrest at his work and so on, that is, uh, uh, provides uh, one of the currents of turbulence in, in this book. I, I think that an underlying theme in this book or, is about honor. We don't hear much about honor anymore. I remember growing up, the expression word of honor was very prominent in our lives. You would hear it all the time, your word of honor, a man's word. You don't hear that so much anymore. Um, My Lord, everything has to be signed in triplicate before anybody will believe anything. And I think we've particularly gone through a period where avarice and and, uh, uh, expedience have risen to the top. Uh, Now maybe that some of these crooked CEOs are being put away. Maybe it's time for a return to honor. But that's really the crux of the issue between Christie and his father. Um, he has this, this sense that his father is imbued in him, that, that we have to be honorable people. And then again, without giving so much away, he finds out that uh, it's a lot easier to talk about honor than always to live up to that standard. Right. You also uh, give us such a, a bracingly realistic view of, of, 
brothers and sisters, <laughs> as, uh, as in the case of Christy and his sister Sue. Two decent human beings, certainly, but uh, at each other's throats at, uh, at many points in the book. I never had an older sister. I just had two younger brothers. But I had friends who had older sisters, and I remember that antagonism. I mean, it was always under, you know, underscored by a certain amount of love. But, boy, they were at each other's throat. It was nothing more miserable than the younger brother teasing the older sister or the older sister sort of lording it over the younger brother. I can just remember that with friends of mine. That was not a hard thing to, to, uh, to conjure up, that Sue and Christie had exactly that kind of, of, of relationship, that, that tension that's cleaning each other at the, at the <laughs> dinner table and everything. And yet you, you kind of knew that, that underneath it all, They'd go to war for each other, which, in fact, he kind of does near the end of the book. Right. I do want to return for a moment to the to the point you said earlier about the relationship between uh, 14-year-old Christy and 23-year-old Catherine, uh, uh, what begins as a friendship and becomes kind of a mentorship, and which eventually evolves, as you said, uh, into a sort of love story, not in the traditional sense of the word. Uh, I wonder what you... Uh, how, how you sort of processed that possibility as as the author, and as you tried to craft a story about a, a, a very unconventional sort of love story. Um, you know, like people always ask me, um, you know, how much do I know about a book before I start it? And and the relationship between Christie and and Catherine is one that I had never really sort of figured out ahead of time. I knew they were going to meet, I knew they were going to be friends, but after that. It, it sort of took on a life of its own. I didn't really know how close they would grow to each other. I knew he would admire her. Um, I didn't know that he would really love her, not fall in love, because that's something else again, but really come to love her, and she come to love him. And, and, and that just sort of developed in the writing. It's, it's amazing when you're writing a novel and you get to know the characters, um, how sometimes they can lead you around. <laughs> and, and that's really what what happened here. And there are a couple instances in the book where um, characters did things which I really hadn't planned them to do. But you sort of get into it, and, and, and I, I know I'm sounding very mystic here, and I don't mean that, but things turn out not the way that you wanted them to, or not the way you expected them to. You're sort of led by the characters more than you lead the characters. And that was, that was pretty much the story of, 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 of Christy and Catherine, their relationship. Interesting. Uh, I have had a, uh, the opportunity a couple of times on this program to talk with authors uh, about the relationship between author and editor. I'm assuming that, to some extent at least, you had an editor on this book. Editor was a wonderful editor named Hillel Black. Uh, and Hillel, has, um, uh, he was the editor-in-chief of a couple of, uh, of major publishers, and he's just been around for years. And he, when he found uh, this manuscript in, you know, and read it for the first time, he just adored it. And actually, there was very little that he wanted me to do, except two things, and I'll tell you what they were. I had some sort of flash-forwards. Like, I wanted people to know that Christy and his sister, in their adult life, did get along very well, hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And he said, you've got to take that out. That's just too distracting. And the other thing that he had me take out, and I was reluctant at first, was we used... Um, very blithely bad language in the 1950s, particularly where it referred to races and, and ethnic types. We were very casual 
in, in, in the language that we used. And it wasn't, it wasn't, I mean, everybody kind of used it, you know, it was just common every day. And so I had that in the book, people referring to this group and that group in the terms that we did. And Hillel said, you got to take that out. He said, I know it was true. I was around then. He said, you're absolutely accurate. But he said, it's going to be too jarring. Mm. And it's going to put people off. And people reading it in the year 2002 are not going to like these people. And, and so it was, it was a question of, of not sanitizing the 1950s. But if we hadn't of, of, of sort of dressed it up a little bit, it would, it would have been very jarring. So that was a terrific um, editorial help right. uh, for, for me. But otherwise, um, uh, much of the book was, you know, exactly as as he first read it. Right, uh, and it sounds like in both of those cases, it it was really a concern about distraction. Yes, uh, that 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 really prompted. Yeah, those there, there were a couple other things he said. You're not clear. I mean, which a good editor will say. I don't quite understand why this. Ha- you got to make this more clear, Frank. You know that sort of thing. Right. And that's what a a really good editor will lend lend to a book. I suppose there are certain things where the wheels turn in your head, but maybe they haven't actually been transcribed on the page. I I think sometimes I have that problem. Is It's so clear to me that I don't help the reader enough. And so when an editor comes along and says, I really don't understand this, my first reaction is, hey, you're really stupid. But then when (laughs) I, you know, that's the way a writer thinks about editors instinctively. (laughs) But uh, but once, you know, I, I, I calm down and stop acting like a child, uh, then I often say, hey, they're right. And that was certainly the case with L.L. Black. He was a wonderful editor. I've read uh, several of your nonfiction books. A Big Bill Tilden is my favorite, mm-hmm. by the oh. way. I love that book. Um, and, and, of course, the, the story of uh, Alex, the life of a child, is so powerful and beautifully wrought. This is the first of your fiction that I've read. I've not, I hardly ever read fiction. And uh, I'm curious, in your other books, this is maybe your seventh or eighth yeah. work of fiction, eighth right? Eighth novel, yeah. Um, uh, is sports always uh, a fairly prominent player in in the proceedings? No, I, I think if anything, um, I try to sort of. I don't consciously try, but I find myself going away from sports in my novels because I, I think it, it gets. I get to be jaded if I do too much sports. So it's sort of fun for me to to move out of sports. And, and there's yes, there's a swimming race that's in this novel, but that's probably five or six percent of the whole story. Um, and, and I've written sports novels. Everybody's All-American is probably the best known. But the last three or four I've done have, have been out of the sports territory altogether. And the funny thing is, Greg, I think it makes me a better sports writer. Interesting. You know, because I come back to sports um, with kind of renewed interest. Uh, and, and it probably makes me a better fiction writer that I'm not sitting there trying to write fiction the whole time. So I, anyway, this is what I've convinced myself, and maybe some psychiatrists would say this is a wonderful rationalization, but, but I think it, 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 it works to my advantage. Very good. We're talking with Frank DeFord, talking at this point about his most recent novel called An American Summer, published by, by Sourcebooks. Mr. DeFord, I did want to ask you just a question or two about uh, all that you do, including, of course, the pleasure we take on a weekly basis of hearing <laughs> your commentaries on National Public Radio's uh, morning edition. I'm curious, first of all, how did that uh, gig uh, start? How did that well, begin? that's very interesting because I had never done, uh, I'd done a tiny little bit of radio, but I certainly did not think of myself as a radio person. And, uh, and uh, uh, someone that is well-known to NPR audiences now, uh, Ketzel Levine, because she does the, um, the gardening, 
uh, was at that time a, a young producer, and, and Morning Edition was just getting started. This was back in the fall of 1979. And they sent Quetzal out on sort of an expedition, as nearly as I can tell, to get a couple of sports people. And her father said, you know, I used to listen to Red Barber when I lived in Brooklyn. Why don't you get him? <laughs> so she went down to Tallahassee and knocked on his door, and he said, okay. And for some reason, she came to Sports Illustrated. And, and people said, well, maybe this guy, you know, maybe he can, he, he does stuff, maybe it'll work on radio, too. And it was just that kind of serendipitous moment. And I said, okay, let's give it a try. And it was just like that. And, and uh, apart from a, about a two-year period when I had to uh, leave off being a commentator because I was running a newspaper and I just didn't have time, I, I've done it ever since uh, January of, of 1980. Wow, over yeah. 20 years. I, I had my 1,000th uh, commentary uh, earlier this year. That's an awful lot of commentary. Wow, right? well, you don't sound the least bit jaded, I must say. <laughs> um, you're also a contributor to uh, the, the HBO series, the name of it's escaping me, the one with Brian it's, Gumbel. Uh, Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, and I do about five or six uh, sort of magazine-type pieces for them uh, in, in the course of the year, and that's, that's entirely different, too. You can see I, I kind of touch a lot of bases. One of the things that is intriguing about, uh, to me, uh, for anybody who writes about or talks about sports is that so often sports is a, a really highly charged uh, arena, not just yes. you know, physically, but just uh, where, where, where people's opinions and allegiances uh, run sometimes white hot in their intensity. And, and, it's, and in some ways, uh, to, to step into the midst of that, uh, with an opinion or perspective that uh, might be kind of contrary to the flow or, or whatever that that some some people might not welcome. I mean that 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 seems like a almost sort of reckless way to make a living. Well, I guarantee you that when um, I express certain opinions, uh, the email floods into NPR, and they very nicely send them on to me. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's always, I see, I, I, I turn on my computer and, and, and look up in, in the afternoon of a Wednesday afternoon, and I see these huge number of, and I just know 90% of them are going to tell me, you know, <laughs> I'm an idiot. Hanging's too good for but, you. Um, but, yeah, I, I, hey, if I'm going to step up and, and give my opinion, I can't very well expect people not to give their opinion right back to me. I think that goes with the territory. And oddly enough, a few people actually agree with me. <laughs> and that, key, that sustains me. But uh, in, in more seriously, it's a wonderful audience, NPR. Uh, very seldom do I get people who just sort of scream at me for the sake. I mean, often when people do take issue with me, they take it in a very civil way, and they make points that I file away. You know, they, they, they influence me. Uh, I hate to admit that I'm not 100% right, <laughs> but I'm forced to do it. And, and, and so it's a, it's a great audience, and not only that, Greg, if I ever mispronounce a word. Oh, yes. If, if I ever uh, you know, use you know, uh, the wrong kind of grammar, oh, boy, I hear about it. And that's nice to know that I'm being watched that carefully, that people care that much. Well, and listen to with great intelligence. Yes, they really do. Uh, what is your own uh, personal preference in terms of the sports which you take in and watch just as a plain old fan? Or, or is it almost hard for there to be that space in your life to be not Frank well, before the sports writer? I covered basketball and played basketball. So I have a certain um, devotion to that. I also covered a lot of tennis. I love that. I still think that 
a good baseball game is the best game of all. Now, you notice I, I had a qualifier there because a bad baseball game, you know, will drive you crazy. But a good baseball game, I think, is the best sport that uh, man has ever in, in, invented. And, and I can really get wrapped up in that. One final question I want to ask you. This yeah. may surprise you a bit. Um, okay. This turns, turns serious again. All right. I want to ask you about um, Alex, The Life of a Child, such an extraordinary book which tells the story of, of your uh, young daughter's death. And one of, the, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what, is what is the experience like to take a chapter, a painful chapter, out of one's own life and share it with Americans, not only in, in a superbly written book, but then also in a, in a very finely crafted uh, television movie adaption of it. Two, two, two different things, the, the book and the, and, the, and the movie. Writing the book was really very easy. Uh, it was something I wanted to do. I wanted to do it because I wanted to let the world know about Alex and what a special person she was. And secondly, I also thought that it could help the whole cause of cystic fibrosis, which it did. It sort of gave a face to cystic fibrosis. So... Writing it was, was was not hard. The hardest part was writing about my wife and my son because I was sort of intruding on their privacy. That was the trickiest part. The, writing about Alex was a lot of tears, but the tears were kind of through smiles, if you can understand sure. that. You know, sort of the rainbow breaking through. The movie was a trickier proposition because I was losing control. Mm. Uh, you know, of a very personal story. Uh, exactly. It's one thing to, to, to sell something that you've written, a, a piece of fiction, to the movies. You, you know they may change it, but okay, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of commerce. You've sold them something, and, and okay. It's different when you're writing about your daughter. And, and we, we were terribly afraid. I mean, that was something that was a fam- family discussion. That was not just a... Uh, my decision and, of, and of for it to be transformed to be, into a exactly film. and and but I met with the producer, a man named Leonard Goldberg, and talked to people about him, and they said you can trust this fella, and he's going to do his best, and he assured me that he would, and I, and it really it, it, an awful lot of it came down to faith hmm. in the final analysis, and you you have to give up the thought, you can't say okay, you can make the movie, but if I don't like it, no, you can't do that because. Too much money is invested in, <laughs> at that point. Right. But, but Leonard was nice enough that there were a couple of things I said, just explain this to me. Why did you do it this way instead of that way? Hmm. And the explanations made sense, and there were a couple of small things I, I asked to be changed, and he was agreeable because... And so as it turned out, it was a wonderful experience, and it, it just let more people know about Alex, and, and also more people know about cystic fibrosis. And so it was... It really was a, a double victory for us. Let me say one other thing, too, yes. Rick, since you brought it up. Writing about Catherine in An American Summer, uh, I was helped by the fact that I had lived with Alex. Now, Alex had cystic fibrosis and died when she was eight and was a real person. Catherine is a make-believe person who's 23 years old and in an iron lung with polio. But I could transfer the kind of spunk and, and um, courage that Alex had to Catherine, and I could do it with confidence because I had seen that. I knew mm. that a person could be that way, a sick person could be that way. It was possible. Yes, it and is so p- I, had, I, I wrote about Catherine with, 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 with confidence, and I might not have had that if I had not uh, uh, lived with Alex. So, so that was a very nice 
part of it too. I, mm. I, I gave me great comfort to be bringing, restoring Alex again in, in a different way. Right. Well, and that and that the uh, extraordinary courage and grace which she displayed in the face of of that terrible illness, uh, what what she could accomplish, what she how she could live in the face of that. Uh, was an inspiration for this character named for, Catherine. For, yeah, it really was. I, I sort of knew Catherine a lot better because I'd known Alex. Hmm. And, so, and, and, and quite frankly, I, there's no question that An American Summer is much closer to Alex, the life of a child, than, any, than it is to any of my other uh, works of fiction. It's, it's, the, it's a very sweet, bittersweet uh, work. An American Summer by Frank DeFord. And Mr. DeFord, uh, a True pleasure and honor to have spoken with you today. Uh, Best wishes to you. Well, thank you so much. I'm just delighted that you like the book so much, Greg.